appreciate the opportunity to be with you this morning. Uh, I have uh, been thinking about a text that I've chosen out of the book, the book of the Song of Solomon. If there's anybody that probably doesn't need to be in the book of Solomon, Song of Solomon, it's me. Because Song of Solomon is difficult to read, it's confusing. It's what we call poetry or literature as we might think of it today. It's in the very middle of the Bible. You know, we have those four or five books, uh, Job, but then uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Songs of Solomon. That's what we call the poetry part of the Bible. A lot of verses and things and that we quote from a lot. And uh, Song of Solomon is the love story that's in the Bible. And I want to speak to you from the fourth chapter of Song of Solomon, verse 6. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. That's poetry, and I have to say that that's beautiful poetry, if we can just figure out what it means. You know, when I was growing up, when I thought about poetry, it wasn't like this. Uh, poetry had to rhyme. You know, roses are red, violets are blue, sugar sweet, so are you. That was, that, that was how we talked to the girls back when I was growing up, and that was, we were getting pretty gushy when we did that. Song of Solomon is a love story. And back in small West Texas town I grew up, we didn't talk to the girls like that. They just said, you know, just, huh, they wouldn't have understood what we were meaning. But Song of Solomon is uh, a story, one of the greatest love stories that we ever have, and it's a it, it, it has a special place, but it is difficult to read, difficult to understand. Uh, the Song of Solomon has three primary players. It has a king, who's assumedly King Solomon. It has this Shulamite maiden, this young maiden who is a worker. She works in the vineyards. She works taking care of the flocks and the crops and things. So she's a worker. Uh, but she also has a certain attractiveness to her, and the king... Uh, comes out to inspect his vineyard and falls in love with her. Uh, and then it, the, also then we have the people around her, the other workers in the garden, they interact in this story. It makes it difficult to read because you don't know who's talking. They don't stop and say, you know, Jesus said or Lot said or Moses said. You know, they don't tell you who's talking. They just speak and you're supposed to know and figure it out. And, and that's one of the parts that makes it difficult to figure out you lost me when you start reading through it. I understand that the nation of Israel used to put this on as a play. Every Passover, they would celebrate part of Passover by going through and singing this uh, Song of Solomon as a play. You know, when you go to a play, anybody been to a high school play or maybe even up to a Broadway play, nobody has, has to tell you who's speaking because you look on the stage and there's the man over here on this side. He starts talking and you know it's him. Then the woman responds back, and then you have all the players that come out and may sing or dance or whatever. And you can see it. You know what's going on. You, you visualize it as well. So nobody has to tell you who's speaking. That's not true in the Song of Solomon. It's, in a, it's, it's written in a manner that they just go back and forth. They don't tell you, and you have to kind of guess and figure out who's speaking. That's one thing that makes it somewhat difficult for those of us that didn't especially excel in literature. You know, in college, I, I took courses, and I did okay in the math, the sciences, and, of course, I was journalism and government and history. 
and I did okay and did pretty good in those, but they also required you to take some of these art culture, art courses, and I had to take, you know, a history of art and a history of music, and I had to take, you know, English literature and read all the things that us guys hate to read, the, you know, um, the Scarlet Letter, uh, and I, I can't think about names of them now that were so bad that I didn't understand, and this is what falls into that. I, I, you know, I can remember, I did okay in those other courses, but then when it came down to the arty, what I call the artsy courses and literature courses, I barely got out of those courses, and I can remember being real proud of being able to just barely get out of them. I didn't, didn't know if I was going to get out of them at all. So we're going to try to read this today, uh, this verse 6, Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Now, if we can get through this and figure out what this is about and how it applies to us and get some meaning out of it, you certainly need to give all the credit to the Lord because I don't deserve any of it because I'm, this is, it would be the one that I would struggle with. Song of Solomon, we, it's not quoted a single time in the New Testament. The word God, the word Jesus, the word Lord, Jehovah, all those things we, uh, we talk about being God, they're not mentioned a single time in the Song of Solomon. You know, well, what's it doing in the Bible? It doesn't mention God at all. It's not quoted in the New Testament, not a single time. Well, Song of Solomon is all about God, and it's all about Christ. It has a lot of good verbiage in it. I said it's poetry. It has a lot of things I think you'll recognize in here. If you go back to the first chapter real quick, just to, it was written by, we know King Solomon wrote this, and he wrote 3,000 Proverbs and over 1,000 songs. This was put together, apparently, as a series of poetry and songs put together. But uh, verse 2, it says, uh, let, me kiss, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. One of our popular country and western singers wrote a song about kisses sweeter than wine. That's where it came from. Over here in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. We sing a song about Christ being the lily of the valley. If you go here at chapter 2, verse 4, this is particularly close to me because this is where my grandmother got the name for the church newspaper that my grandfather started. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. You should recognize down about chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past. And the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of the birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is not heard in our land. The turtle dove. He goes, if you're, you don't have to go there, I'll go to song number 217. The church of Christ we have today, a blessing from the Lord. He gave her to his son to save, take her home to above. The turtle dove is singing now, the winter's past and gone. Rise up, my fair one, come away, I'll take you home to stay. <coughs> The second verse is important, too. We'll get to it in a minute, hopefully. She was his bride before she knew she had a husband dear. She was his bride before she knew she even had a husband. That doesn't make sense to us today. Would you, you, you wouldn't consent to getting married before you knew who it was. This, this song, has a, this uh, verse has a lot of things in here that we sing about, about Christ and about his church. But see, this is a love story. It's written apparently about Solomon. Solomon was king of Israel at this time, and he owned a lot of land. He owned a lot, had a lot of assets. We know he built a tremendous kingdom that was rich and powerful, lots of gold, lots of resources. 
One thing he had was he had a number of vineyards so they could make wine. He owned vineyards all out over the entire kingdom. This is about the king going out and visiting one of his vineyards. Goes out to visit it, and he gets there, and he's looking over the workers. He comes, what we'd say, incognito, in disguise. He doesn't really have uh, his king clothes on, his robe, his crown, anything like that. Doesn't come in a chariot. Just rides out to inspect the vineyards. It's like a king would do, going out and just checking all the assets that we own. He gets out there, and he sees all the workers working, and he sees this young little maiden. Later on, we find out she's called a Shulamite maiden. He has nothing in common with her. She is a commoner. He's a king. And he's in a, a vineyard that he owns, but he goes out and sees her out working in the vineyard, and he falls in love with her. Love at first sight. Falls in love with her. He starts kind of talking to her and courting her around, and that's what the book's about. I'll, I'll short, shortcut it a lot and save you a lot of misery of interpreting a lot of these verses. But he falls in love with her, and he asks her to marry him. He did what we called engaged, but it's stronger than that. He espoused her or bequeathed. Betrothed, that's what I was looking for, betrothed. Betrothed was stronger than engagement. It means when you promised to marry somebody, it was a promise that was legally binding. You couldn't get out of it. You couldn't back out of it. If you remember when Joseph was engaged, betrothed to Mary, and he found out she was pregnant, that was the one thing. If she'd gotten pregnant out of wedlock, that was the one thing that would allow him to break the marriage, and he was going to put her away, divorce her privately, and then the angel Gabriel came to him and said, no, don't. She's, she's not been with any man. She has been conceived by the Holy Spirit and would bear Jesus to save the people from the sin. But betrothed or espoused meant, I'm going to marry you, and that's, that's legally binding. It was under the law. It was legally binding. So he says, I want to marry you, and, and told her he would, I promise you. He says, but I'm the king, and I've got a lot of other things going on. I'm going to leave and go back to the palace, but I'm coming back. And when I do, we'll formalize the marriage, we'll get married, and then I'll take you with me, and we'll go back to the palace, and you'll be happy for the rest of your life. You won't have to work in the vineyard anymore, and you'll be doing well. Now, that's what's going on here, and that's what the story is about. Now, I hope you begin to see the comparison pretty quick. As you know, as we, as we sang in that song there, we are the bride of Christ. The elect are his bride. The, the children of God are his elect. He came down here and did his work and left and went back, but he's promised us he's going to come back and get us and take us back. And by the same way, he has betrothed us. He has made us an absolute binding commitment to marry us under the old law, of which he didn't break. He came to fulfill that old law. He promised to marry us, and he will come back and get us again someday. Now, that's, that's what's going on here, and that's the allegory, as we call it, of what's taking place here about we're the bride of Christ. <clears throat> we talk about that all the time. You go over reading Ephesians, how when a marriage between a husband and wife is compared to Christ and the church. It's mentioned throughout the New Testament that Christ is our husband, and he will come back and marry us, and he will take us off to live with him forever. That's what's happening. This verse comes up in chapter 4. Solomon's is eight chapters long. Chapter 4, we were right in the middle of this love story. He has come. He's fallen in love with her. Fallen her. She's kind of comely. and She has nothing in common with him. He's royalty and she's a commoner. But he falls in love with her and says, I promise you I will be back. He makes a binding legal commitment to come back and get her. 
And when I did, and you stay here and keep working in the vineyard until I do, and then I'll come get you and take you home. You'll live in the palace forever. Well, this verse, chapter 4, verse 6, is right in the middle of this taking place. He's left. He's gone. So she's sitting here, and you imagine her being the young commoner bride. She is ecstatic. She is married to the king. She's going to marry the king. He's going to come and get her and claim her and take her back to the palace. I'll get out of this vineyard. I won't have to talk, take care of flocks anymore. I won't have to gather this wine on my knees and get dirty and sunburned. All these problems. He's going to come back, and I'm excited about that. But in the meantime, I've got to keep working in this dadgum vineyard. I've got to be on my hands and knees. I've got to keep cleaning out the pig troughs and helping with the, bring the sheep in. And that's where we find her right now. And she's, this is a quote. Some people attribute this to the king. I attribute it to the bride, the Shulamite maiden, the bride. Either way, it works. Verse 6, until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Now to put this in terms that I maybe would have better understood growing up, this is what we have until the day break. There's a good day coming. There's a good day coming. Things are not so good right now, but there's a good day coming. And when it comes then, my problems are going to go away. <clears throat> but until then, what do I do? I need to figure out how to live, how to get by while I'm waiting for my king, bride, bridegroom, to come back and claim me and take me off in his great royal chariot and live in the kingdom forever. Until that happens, what do I do? How can I sit here and bide time working in this place and all the problems I've gotten? You know, I'll be beautiful one someday when he can come back and make me a bride and give me the, the, the clothes of a queen. But until then, how am I going to get along? That's what this is asking. Until the daybreak, that's when he comes back. And the shadows flee away. You know, shadows are scary things, problems. You know, when we're kids... Shadows are true shadows. We're scared of shadows. We used to be afraid to walk home at night after going to the show or something because and we'd have people scare us out of the shadows, jump out. And, and I may have been guilty of that a time or two myself with my younger siblings. <coughs> shadows are scary. When you get old, shadows, they're still there. They just turn into problems. We, get, we have a lot of problems in this world and depression comes along and we've got that. And he gives us advice here about until the day breaks, though, until we get day breaks and everything gets bright and clean and sunshine, what do we do? How do we survive what we're going through? Let's go through this a little bit and talk about it. What's taking place here? First of all, let's look at this, you know, from the Shulamite maiden's point of view. Until the day break, that's when my man is coming back. That's when my king is coming back to claim me. And the shadows flee away. I can get out of the mud of the ditches and I can get out all the problems I've got. How do I survive in the meantime? Well, I go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Well, where's that? What does that have to do? Let's back up and let's start this now from our perspective. Until the day break. You know, we all look forward to new days. You know, our whole lives we spend time thinking, you know, if I can get through this problem, if I can just get to tomorrow. If I can get to the next week, you know, if I can, I, I can get along. I know growing up as kids, we talk about, you know, as a baby, well, I'll be glad, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I thought this, I'll be glad when I can walk like all the other kids do. When I get walk, I'll be glad when I can go to school and get away from my mom and dad at home a little bit. 
when I get to school, I'll be glad when I get to be a teenager. Then I'll be glad the day that I get my driver's license. Then I'll be the day that I graduate and I can go off to college. You know, and then I get to college and I'll be glad, you know, that I can uh, see a lot of girls. I can date a lot of girls. I'll be glad the day that I can get married. And then I'll be glad of that day when I finally have kids. Then I'll be glad of that day when I get rid of my kids. <laughs> you know. And then I'll be looking for that day when I can retire. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. I'm looking for that day. There's always a day out there when things are going to get better. What day are we really talking about here? You know, we sang a song a while ago. Brother Dylan led a song a while ago, if I can find it. Uh, there it is. What a day that will be. There's coming a day that when no heartache shall come, no more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye, all is at peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. When Christ comes back, that's going to be a day. We'll have a hard time imagining it. One of my favorite songs that I had picked out, and I had to add Brother Dillon's to it when he did this, Some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away. To a home on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I believe, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us about that day when our bodies will, will, will be incorruptible. We'll put on our moral bodies, we'll put on immortality, and we will meet the Lord in the sky and we'll fly away with Him. The Lord's going to come down with a shout, with the trump of the archangel. We're all going to come up. The graves are all going to be open. They'll all come out. We will meet Him with the sky. We're going to know everybody. Over in uh, Isaiah chapter 40, I believe it tells us that every person on the face of the earth at one time will observe his glory. We'll see him in glory. We will see that. Everyone at the same time will see it. Romans chapter 14, I believe it's verse 11, says, And at that time when he comes back, every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess him. We're going to fly away to a, to a life that we cannot imagine. It's going to be wonderful when that happens. We've got a wonderful thing to look forward to. We've got a wonderful, you know, it's money in the bank that's sitting there waiting on us. And he's betrothed us. He's promised us that's coming. We are his elect. He is coming back to claim us. You've got something fantastic to look forward to. And we ought to be happy about it. We ought to be excited about it. And we ought to love You know, you go read the last uh, few verses of the book of Revelations. It said, Lord, come quickly. Come back, like the Shulite might maiden is. I'm so happy when he comes back because my life changes. It's going to be great. We've got something really good to look forward to when the day breaks, when that new day gets here. That's the day that I'm looking forward to. We all ought to be. We can't imagine it. I can't begin. I can't describe to you what it's going to be like other than what Scripture tells us. But we put on immortal bodies. We'll live forever at that time. We'll be happy for the rest of our life in a way we cannot imagine. That's the day that's coming. But when that, and it says, when that day break, the shadows flee away. That means we got shadows right now, don't we? We got problems. <clears throat> I got more problems than you do, I know. I don't think any of you have as many problems as I do. <laughs> we could each, I know each one of us could get up here and say that same thing. You got any problems? Got any problems at work? Got any financial problems? You got any Anybody in your family that's got addictions or drugs or alcohol or sex or, or gambling or any of those type of problems you got going on? You got problems at work? Anybody enjoying politics these days? Have we got a problem or not at the national level? 
We've got a virus that's plagued us now. Do you know? I, I know a few people that's been hit. We've had a few old Baptist ministers. I put one in the banner of love where he died of the COVID. Is it true? Is it a hoax? You know, who are you going to believe? I don't know. I mean, what's going on at the national level with the church? We've got lots of problems, don't we? <coughs> Be glad when those can go away. And that's, that's the same thing the Shulamite woman was talking about. I, you know, I actually have to work for a living. Golly, I've got this wonderful fantasy land out there in front of me, but I've got to work and I've got to live in this stupid world right now. I've got to deal with all the problems, all the personality people that, I, that give me trouble that I have to put up with every day. Uh, you know, I, I get myself in a financial bind every now and then. I have to figure out how to get up. I have to figure out how to raise kids that I don't know how to do. I have to figure out how to take care of aging and dying parents. You know, some of us have, have lost our first spouse. I know and we've had to deal with things like that and raise kids in the meantime. We've got a lot of problems in this world. John chapter 16, verse 33, Christ tells us, In this world you shall, it's not a may, you shall have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's what he's telling us. That's today, and that's happy. Now, how do we get from here to there? How do we survive tomorrow? How do we get by the next day? I, until then, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Well, where is that? Can I get a ticket there? How do I go there? Let's go backwards. Let's go to the end one first. The hill of frankincense. Where's the hill of frankincense? It wasn't even myrrh. You remember when the three wise men brought gifts to baby Jesus, young Jesus? What did they bring him? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Both of these are two hot commodities back in the old days. When Joseph was kidnapped, well, kidnapped by his brothers and sold to the Ishmaelites to go off down to Egypt, what were they carrying down to Egypt? They were carrying myrrh down there to sell it to the Egyptians because it was used for all sorts of purposes in their religious worship and for embalmings and things like that and medical treatments. We have myrrh and frankincense mentioned a lot in the Bible. Frankincense is mentioned mostly with prayer. Frankincense is used to make incense. Go over here with me if you've got your Bible. I'll go to Luke real quick. Luke chapter 2. Excuse me, Luke chapter 1, I mean. Luke chapter 1. There was a man named Zachariah, and he had a wife named Elizabeth. They, hadn't have, they couldn't have any children. Hadn't, they've gotten up old in age and couldn't have, and they were barren. He'd been praying about it. And he was a high priest. He was a high priest at the temple. Verse 8, And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in, in the order of his course, it was his day to go in to take care of the things in the temple. According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the time of the incense. At the time of the burning of the incense was prayer time. That was prayer hour. And there appeared unto him an angel standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when the Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fell, fear fell upon him. But the angel said, Fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard. They were going to have a child. That child became John the Baptist, as you know. Burning of incense was a time of prayer. If you saw someone burning incense, you knew they were probably praying. Even today, I mean, back in the days when I was a reporter and used to go out and cover the police beat, I had to go out when the police 
uh, monitor went off, well, I had to go out, and I went out on a number of times when they had home invasions, several suicides, domestic violence things, and got to go in those houses. A lot of times people would have part of the thing I always noticed, it was particular to me, was altars set up. And the policeman told me, we see a lot of these altars set up. People burn incense because they want to go to the Lord in prayer. They're still back under the Old Testament, but they burn incense. <clears throat> if you go back and look and see what does that have to do with our church, go back and look at chapter 30 of Exodus, where the Lord told Moses when he was laying down the law, he says, Moses, I want you to build me an altar of incense. I want you to build an altar. It's going to be about a foot and a half wide and about a foot and a half square, about a foot and a half square and about three foot off the ground. Make it out of wood and then cover it in solid gold and set it in there right next to the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy part of the tabernacle, the temple. The temple's about the size of a, of a quarter of a football field. You went inside it to the courtyard. Then you had this curtained off area. You went inside the first room. Then you went inside the second room, which was the most holy room. In the second room was where they put the Ark of the Covenant that had the Ten Commandments inside, the original Ten Commandments inside of it. And he said, put that altar in there and take incense and burn it on there, and I will come down and smell the sweetness of that incense and know and listen to your prayers. And he says, now I want you to take incense the way you make it over in chapter 30 of Exodus. He says, this is how you make it. Take pure frankincense, mix it up with a few other spices and beat it down to, to a fine beat and then light it. When you come in here to do the prayers twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening, you light it and you burn it, and I'll know that's when you can come and commune with the Lord. The burning of incense was when you took time to commune with the Lord. You went to the Lord in prayer. The hill of frankincense is, go pray. Go pray to the Lord. Take time out and pray. Now I'm going, if you're like me, I, I, I believe I pray every day at some point in time. I'm always asking the Lord for help on this and that. I'm driving along somewhere. I do a lot of driving, you know, in, in my truck. I pray to the Lord, and I pray, but I'm interrupted by this, and something else will happen, I get interrupted. You know, and I'll say, you know, I, you know I've never gone into a trial or a courtroom where I would have said, Lord, help me. You know, help me do this and help me get justice and those type of things. Those are short, real prayers. The Lord gave us how to pray over in Sermon on the Mount. You all know that. Uh, the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. <clears throat> thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth, or dust is in heaven. He gives us that prayer. And that's the, the wording of how you should pray. You don't have to copy that word for word, but that's how you should pray. But where he really teaches us about the hill of frankincense is over in Luke 22 when he goes up on the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays, and he prays with such intensity because of the agony he's in. He knows he's going to be tortured. He knows he's going to be beaten, tortured, and put on a cross and hung by a cross and killed. He prayed with such agony that sweat dropped off him like great drops of blood. I've never prayed that intense. But that's how we ought to pray. If you've got problems, you need to take them to the Lord. Take them and put them on the Lord. Give them to Him. We've got a lot of problems in this world. You know, I said, you know, you've got a lot of individual problems. <clears throat> right now going on with this COVID going on, and we're getting into this time of year when depression gets hard on everybody. Everybody. You know, we had the depression goes up, suicide rate goes up because people don't know what to do. You've got problems in this world you don't know how to handle. And, you know, that's what, the, you know, the, that's what the psychiatrists for and the doctors who treat that, treat depression, say people are dealing with things that they don't know how to handle right now. <coughs> Shoot my maiden says, I'm going to go to the hill of frankincense. 
I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer. Remember when the, the apostles were trying to heal the young girl and they couldn't heal her at all? And they told Jesus, says, what, why can't we heal this young girl? And he says, sometimes more than just a simple prayer, it takes prayer and fasting to heal a problem this bad. If you've got some bad problems, go to the Lord in prayer. I have learned, and I don't fast as much as I should, but when I do fast, I find out I focus more on the Lord. I know I'm fasting for the Lord. Now, if I'm fasting to try to lose weight, which I need to, that's a diet. If I'm fasting because I'm unhappy with the government somehow, that's a protest. But if I do away with meat and I just decide I'm going to fast on bread and nuts and fruit or something like that, get by the day, <coughs> I'm fasting for the Lord. And I want the Lord to know it. And I don't want anybody else to know it. We're not supposed to tell anybody else. We're not supposed to. Lord tells us we're supposed to, if he makes our face dark, cover that up. Don't let anybody know we're fasting. Go to the Lord in prayer. Do you have a time of day when you pray? I'm speaking, I'm preaching to myself. Do I take time to really go pray? Do I put myself in a closet? Do I find myself in a nice quiet place so I won't be interrupted? You know, when Christ went to pray, he went up into the hills to get away from the crowd. Do we take time to go to the hill of frankincense. Do we take time to say, I'm going to take some time once a day, once a week, once every so often, in which we go pray. Just you and the Lord. Give him your problems. You know, your problem may not be solved overnight, but you'll have a huge burden off your shoulders. You'll have a peace that passes all understanding. You'll be able to live with this world until we get to that good day. I can't solve the political problems in Washington, D.C. What good is it going to do? Samuel tells us when they made Saul king, he said, you know, if you'll continue to follow the Lord and go to him in prayer, the Lord will bless both you and your king. Samuel says, take it to the Lord. I can't fix the Washington problem, but he can. He can take like he can take the king's heart in his hand and turn it like he does the rivers of the world. You know, the Democrats and Republicans have fought forever and they're going to keep fighting. Is this problem too big for the Lord? Go back and look at Matthew 22 when he uh, took on the, both the Sadducees and the Pharisees at the same time. <clears throat> the Democrats and Republicans are reading the same set of laws. They've got the exact same constitution. One reads it going this way and one reads it going that way, but the words are the same for both of them. The Sadducees and the Pharisees disagreed on a lot of things. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection or angels. They're reading the same book. They're reading the same Old Testament. How about today? How about the Calvinists and the Arminians? They're both reading the same Bible in the New Testament that we all read. Calvinists say, oh, we are saved by by the predestination of God. In fact, everything is predestinated. The Arminians will get over here and they'll say, well, we're saved by our works, <clears throat> completely by our works and not by any act of God, but you've got to do it yourself. The old Baptists are the one I know that puts both of these together. We are saved by the predestinated work of God. In the meantime, our good works benefit us. Our good works bring us closer to God. Prayer is a good work that brings you closer to God. So you got the Calvinists and the Arminians reading the same book. Go to the days of the old England when you had the Whigs and the Tories. Go over in the Muslim world where the Muslims are divided between the Shiites and the Sunnis. They hate each other almost as much as they hate us. 
God has seen this problem before, and He can take care of it. We can't. Go to Him in prayer. <clears throat> the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You say, I'm not righteous. Yes, you are. You, are, you have the righteousness of Christ. He is your betrothed. He, is your, he has made you His bride. You have His righteousness. He has taken your sins on Him, and He has given you His righteousness. You are righteous. Go to the Lord in prayer. That's the hill of frankincense. That'll help get you through the day. He says over there when you said make frankincense, make incense out of this. Don't use this recipe for anything else. I want it to be used only when you come and burn incense to me in there in the ark, with the Ark of the Covenant. When you come in the time of prayer, morning and evening, that's the only time it's to be used. Frankincense, by according to the Lord, that recipe for burning that, which using pure frankincense to make the incense, and you grind it up fine, that recipe was not to be used anybody else. He, he, he strictly laid down the law on that. Because burning of incense is a time of prayer. The hill of frankincense is going to prayer. <coughs> it says, now, the other part is, get me to the mountain of myrrh. Now, what's the mountain of myrrh? Again, let's go back to the 30th chapter of Exodus when he was given down the law to Moses. He says, also, Moses... <coughs> I want you to take 500 shekels of myrrh, pure myrrh, he said. Pure myrrh. This is going to be used for my holy purposes. Take that myrrh and add it with about a hint of oil, which I understand is about a gallon of oil, to make one batch of it. Make a batch of holy anointing oil out of that myrrh. Myrrh had an extremely heavy perfume smell. He took that oil and he says, take that oil and that, in, in the 30th chapter of Exodus, he says how to mix it up, mix it up with this, and don't use it for any other purposes except for the worship service, period. This myrrh you don't use, this myrrh with the holy anointing oil, don't use it for anything else except what I tell you. Then if it gets in Leviticus, he says, now, here's where I'm going to tell you how to use it. Don't you take that holy anointing oil that I've told you how to mix it, don't use it for any other purpose, don't duplicate this recipe on anything else, but just for use in the temple. Go in the temple and anoint it. Put it on the uh, altar of incense. Put it on the Ark of the Covenant. Put it on the labor. Put it on the wash table. Put it on the candelabras. Put it on the walls. He said, you know, he told them to go ahead and anoint everything in that tabernacle, in that temple, in that church with holy anointing oil, heavily perfumed with this myrrh. <clears throat> you walked in this, you could walk in that, this, this was the tabernacle, you could walk in this tabernacle blind and you could smell that myrrh and go, I'm in a church house somewhere. I'm in a temple. He says, not only that, now get Aaron, the priest, the high priest, the first high priest, and all his sons and all priests after him. He said, now I want you to take this myrrh and I want you to pour it over his head, completely soak him with it. I believe Psalms 133, the first couple of verses talks about, David talks about how you anoint someone with oil. He said, as he did Aaron, he took this oil and he poured it over his head and it went down and it saturated his beard. It ran down his face and said, you're talking a gallon of this oil. It saturated his beard. It went over his garments. And he had on priestly garments, a robe and a vest and, and, and a belt. All, you can go see the descriptions of this really elaborate robe the priest wore. And it was beautiful, purples and reds and blues. It says that he poured this anointing all over him and soaked it with him. You couldn't get around Aaron without smelling that myrrh. 
when you came in to the temple, you smelled it on all the priests. <clears throat> you smelled it on all the buildings. The Lord says, I want you to sanctify everything with this holy oil. <clears throat> when you come here to worship me, it's to be, you, you're going to know when you walk in the building, you're going to know it. You're going to be able to smell it because it's so strong. The smell of myrrh and the anointing oil that was used on everything <coughs> is to sanctify it. He says that, sanctify it because it's for worshiping me. Incense was saying prayer. When you come to worship, he said, you come to worship, you're going to smell that myrrh and you won't, no, no question about it, you'll know where you are. You're in the house of the Lord. You come to worship the Lord. He's telling us, where do you go until the day breaks? You go to prayer and you go to the house of the Lord. You go to worship service. They had to treat the tabernacle and the temple holy. We should treat our church service holy. I'm not talking about the building. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm not talking about the pews and that. I'm talking about we should be special when we come here. When we come together as a gather, gathering together, that's the church. You're the people that are the church. We should come and we should treat it that way. It's a special time and it's solemn and it, we should, it should be treated with reverence. We should come to church and treat it as a, something special the Lord has given us on this earth to get away from the problems of the world. Gives us a chance to get away and look to Him and look at all the satisfaction and the pleasure and the uh, peacefulness that He gives us that we can't get anywhere else. When we can come in here, we can take a few minutes out to worship the Lord. We can forget about the problems of this world. We can enjoy each other. When we come in, when we have the communion service, we know we're thinking about Him. We take His bread, the bread and, and the wine, His body and His blood. We do the feet washing, which He's told us when we were supposed to forget all the problems of the world and wash somebody else's feet so that you can show them, you're my brother, you're my sister. And I forgive, please forgive me of any sins I've committed to you, and I forgive you of any sins you've committed to me. We learn how to treat each other. Get out in this world, it's totally different. And we're not supposed to bring the things of the world into the church, just like they did in the tabernacle, temple. The, the mountain of myrrh is our worship service, which we come and worship the Lord. We can take a few minutes out to praise Him. You know, it's our church today is what he's talking about, and that's what he's telling us here how to do. Until the day breaks, we've got a great day of coming. Until that day comes, <clears throat> and our shadows flee away. Like I said, that's the day when all our troubles, all the problems we have every day, I can't get a good night's sleep now because of all the things I have to think about and worry about. But when I come to the, come to the house of the Lord, and we sing to the Lord, and we praise, we get away from the problems just for a short period. We get away from the problems of the world. Open to the Lord where I want to go at song number 218. You may sing of the beauty of mountain and dale, of the silvery streamlet and flowers of the vale, but the place most delightful this earth can afford is the place of devotion, the house of the Lord. You may boast of the sweetness of day's early dawn, we all like a sunrise, of the sky's softening graces when day is just gone, I love the sunsets, but there's no other season or time can compare with the house of devotion, the season of prayer. He's given us a way 
to bide our time until He returns. He's given us a way to, in, to be able to look forward and enjoy what we know is coming. We can't enjoy it to the extent that we're really going to enjoy it when it does come. But until then, we ought to pray. We ought to take time to pray. We take time for everything else. I seem to have always have time to watch the Red Raiders and the Dallas Cowboys. I always seem to have time to watch a movie or two on TV. I have all these other things. Do I have time to find myself a quiet corner and pray? Do I have time to take an hour, an hour and a half on Sunday morning once a week and come and join the other believers so that we can encourage each other, so that we don't forsake the assembly as he told us, where we can get away from the problems of the world. He has given us such an easy way to worship him. He puts himself in our heart. You want to pray? You don't have to go to the tabernacle anymore. You don't have to go to the priest, you, the high priest like they had to in the old days. All you got to do is look inside. He's there. He's there waiting for you to turn to him. He's your husband. Nobody gets closer than him and between the husband and the bride of Christ. And we ought to go help each other out, help ourselves help each other out in the church today. We ought to make sure that we take it and make it a special place in our hearts. You've been very kind with your attention, and my prayer is that the Lord richly bless each of you.